This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And today, I am so delighted to be joined by my good friend, Pastor Michael Fisher, who leads the Greater Zion Church family in Compton. And I met Pastor Fisher in Jerusalem at the Eagle's Wings Day for the Prayer for the Peace of Jerusalem event, which happens every year between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur on that Sunday. And uh, Pastor Fisher was, I believe, the first speaker, and uh, he gave an address on Israel that had the whole audience completely stunned. It was the best speech about Israel that anybody had heard, whether they were uh, Americans visiting or Israelis. I mean, everyone was stunned, then on their feet and cheering along with Michael in just an extraordinary expression of uh, love for Israel that emanated from his uh, Christian faith. So, uh, Michael, it's such an honor to be here with you today. I'm glad to be here with you, Mark. <laughs> and I, I don't think I don't think I was first. I think I was like last. I was like right before Robert Stearns got back up. Well, you stole the show, so you're what people remember. So, <laughs> in addition to leading uh, the Greater Zion Church family in Compton, Michael has a community development cor- corporation, the JT Foundation, which is a ministry aligned with the church that has built a youth center, has awarded lots of scholarships, and has received widespread recognition for its Young Visionaries program, which is a program of mentorship for boys transitioning to men. In addition, Michael has launched the Pray, Provide, and Push 100 initiative that helps formerly incarcerated people get jobs at companies who are seeking employees. I believe that pursuant to that program, that as soon as you say this young person who's formerly incarcerated is ready for a job, the company's just higher on your say-so. Yes, yes. Yeah, that, that program is based off of the strong relationships that I have with a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and business owners that come into the city of Compton. So they're always seeking to have partnerships with nonprofits and churches. And I just think that there's a trust there with where it should be, but at least with us, there's a trust there with our church that whoever we bring, we're not going to bring them someone that's not of integrity and it's not serious about rebuilding their lives. So before we get to the passage that uh, Pastor Fisher has chosen, which is the uh, burning bush passage. So we're going to discuss the burning bush passage, which for those of you with a Torah in front of you, that would be Shemot Exodus 3, 4. I just want to talk about some advice that your father gave you when you assumed the leadership of the church over 10 years ago. And this advice was so profound because your father's advice could have applied to any synagogue In fact, it could have applied to any denomination of Judaism, yet it applied to you and to Christianity. So when I saw this similarity, I I had to tell it to the audience and ask you about it. So this is what your father said to you when you took over the church. He said, don't dress up Jesus. Just preach naked Jesus. Don't try to modernize him. Just stick to the word and the Bible. The Bible works for all generations. So I don't try to find something cool to do. I just keep it real and relevant and speak to the Bible. So this is your father, who was a legendary pastor. This was the advice that he gave to you. Yeah. You know, and my dad actually got that advice from his dad. So it's like, gen- wow. it's like generational. So I would- Was his father a pastor as well? Yeah. My grandfather was a pastor. He established way back in like the early, no, the late 1920s, early 1930s, like 
Black churches in Louisiana, Chicago, and then eventually out here in Los Angeles. So it was pioneer. And he, and so he, he instilled that into my father that like God doesn't need an advocate. He just needs a reporter. And so we're just to tell the story. We're not supposed to dress it up. Right. And it's a, it's a tension that we see in, in Judaism where Jewish leaders like Christian leaders want to have young people attracted to synagogues, Jewish affiliation. And uh, very often their chosen tactic is to make it quote unquote cool, whether it's sushi or yoga. Or- well, I mean, but think about it, right? So it's the same thing with like having a newborn or a baby that a lot of times if you're not careful, you want them to eat or drink the substance so much that you'll add anything to it. But that ultimately taints the nutrients and it doesn't, it's not as substantial if you would just give it to them raw. I mean, if you keep giving it to them raw, eventually what do we do? We just acquire a taste for it, you know? So I think both rabbis, preachers, pastors, popes, it doesn't matter. When we start trying to be cool and hip to attract, then, you know, it loses the substance and doesn't last as long. And people don't go to church or the synagogue for cool. They go for God. Right. Exactly. And I, I never understand why, why it is that the church or even the synagogue, it's, it's news to me that the synagogue suffers with the same epidemic. But, you know, I never understand why people, the church is the only place where they kind of want to always reinvent themselves. But every other institution and every other place never bothers. You know, McDonald's is always going to be unhealthy, you know, and they're like, our slogan is, you're going to love it. We're not going to tell you you're going to be healthy. You're just going to love what we have. You know, Burger King is always, you're going to have it your way. Amusement parks are about roller coasters. They never try to open up a club. The church is the only place, or I guess synagogues also, that's always right. trying to reinvent themselves to be relevant. And it doesn't make sense. And, and the interesting thing that we've seen in Judaism is that the more you demand from somebody, the more responsibility that you tell them they incur, and the more you ask of them, the more engaged they become. It's not about fun and cool. The more you make it serious and substantial, the more attracted they become to it. Right. But I think that the problem is, is that a lot of times when you deal with young people, right, in those years, you don't want to be responsible. So what the church synagogue has to understand is that there a lot of them are just in that phase of life where they're running from responsibility, period. So you don't need to transform to try to chase them down. You just need to wait until they mature and then eventually they will come to you. They will always know where to go when it's time to be responsible. And the church and synagogue should be those places. Absolutely. So, uh, um, Pastor, let's let's get right into the burning bush. So this is 3-4. So of all the passages in the Torah to choose, why is the burning bush especially meaningful to you? Um, the burning bush has always caught my eye because it was God's response to social injustice. It was his response to slavery right? I mean, the whole conversation with Moses is him saying, I heard the cries of my people. I have seen how they have been treated unjustly, you know, and this is my response to that. And so I've all, I've always been intrigued with that scripture. It has always reminded me that God actually cares, right? If we want to be mystical about it, he's this big old gigantic God on this big old throne way up somewhere, but he actually cares about what's going on in Egypt. <laughs> you know, and for me, that's comforting. That's comforting to know. So I always refer back to that scripture whenever I think that God doesn't care about what's going on in this world. He does. His eyes are upon us. I love when the scripture says that. 
His ears are attentive. I love when the scripture says that. He inclines, which means he leans forward. So he gets very close down to what it is we're going through. And then he responds. So, so Exodus 3, besides, of course, that he picks, you know, a common man to do something divine and supernatural. Right. And I think that's, that's one of the keys to this passage is that Moses is a shepherd shepherding the sheep of Jethro, and he's just doing what he does every day, which is shepherding through the desert and bushes burn in the desert all the time. So Moses is just doing what he does, and then he sees the burning bush. And I think one of the, the very interesting and deeply instructive aspects of this passage is that burning bushes were and are very common in the desert. So the easy thing, in fact, the predictable thing for Moses or anybody else would have been just to keep going. The, bur- the bush is burning. Just keep going. Not a big deal. The bush is burning. But Moses stops and notices. He notices something different. It looks the same, but he notices the bush is not being consumed. Right. Which intrigues him. He sees something that he's never seen before. Same situation, but it's, it's playing out differently. And in this particular time and climate, this is what really drew my attention. I did a whole month series on this, this text at my church right after George Floyd. During the protests, everything is on fire, you know, and we've seen this before in riots, right? But this go around, it was like God was very strategic in drawing the common man and common woman's attention to a situation that otherwise they would have overlooked. Very interesting. In your month-long study of this in the church, uh, what did you focus on? What What a great way to approach the passage with that kind of seriousness and attention like Moses had. Yeah, well, the first thing that I I paid attention to is that, you know, there comes a time when you can't just keep passing by, right? And so as much as we hated to see the riots, the precinct burn down the fires, what it did, though, was for a couple of days, it just kept drawing everyone's attention. You know, uh, one translation to the Bible says that Moses stood in amazement. You know, it was like a gaze. It was like a gaze. He was like stuck in a gaze. He just couldn't get his eyes off of what was happening with this bush. And for days, it was like all of our society, culture, even around the world was in a gaze, you know, on what was happening with George Floyd and the plight of African-Americans and the injustice surrounding this situation. And there comes a time when I think that that's done purposefully to awaken a leader in all of us who have become comfortable with just being common shepherds. So I dealt with, I dealt with that. Then I dealt with, and what's your response, right? You know, you're on holy ground now. Like it's a holy calling, if you will. Holy, which simply means it's a sanctified calling. It's something set apart. It's something different. And I was challenging our people. What is going to be your response now that you have seen this bush? Now that you've seen what happened to George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, What would be your response? God doesn't just advertise what's happening in Egypt. He now lays this responsibility on Moses and like, hey, now what are you going to do about this? And I I just love it. I I, I love the whole scripture. I even dealt with the whole thing of how God technically could have in one strike been like, bam, and dealt with the whole thing. But he's very purposeful in saying, I want to use humankind. I want to use mankind. I want to use humans. I want to use your hands, your arms, your feet, your mouth in order to do something. God wants a partner. Exactly. And it's such an interesting point you made about holy ground, because that comes up in uh, 3.5, where God 
saw that he turned aside to see, that Moses turned to see the burning bush that he could easily pass by. And God called out to him from amid the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he replied, the great reply of the Torah, here I am. Hineni, here I am, which is you have all of me. And God said, do not come closer to here. Remove the shoes from your feet because the place you stand is what you just said, Pastor Fisher, is on holy ground. Yeah, and you know, those sandals, those sandals, if you will, or those uh, quote-unquote shoes, if you will, right? They carry, as we all know, this is just simple. They carry dirt from wherever you came from, right? As you travel. And God, I felt, is like calling Moses into something new. So he's like, all that that you've been bringing with you, it cannot go any further. And I kind of use that scripture to kind of talk to us about our ideologies, our stereotypes, and how over time, those, the rocks of stereotypes, those, the rocks of assumptions and ideologies have gotten caught in our sandals. But where we're going further, we have to take all of that off. We have to take all of that off. And what do you feel when you take off your shoes and your feet are just on the dirt? You become one with nature. It almost brings you all the way back to like how we were created. And that's what God was trying to get Moses back to a place of getting rid of what you were taught when you were in Pharaoh's house, get rid of what you were taught, you know, and the trauma you went through during the wilderness while you were coming here, the hurt, the pain, take all that off because now I need you to see everything else from this point from a more pure lens. And so I I encourage people that we should take off what we heard through rap music and we should take off what Ice Cube has said. We should take off what the president has said and what Republicans or Democrats have said. Take that all off. Get back to a place of seeing things from from a pure perspective of just being a human and looking and saying, that's my brother, that's my sister, no matter their color. And I should care about what happens to them. Beautiful. The action orientation that you spoke about before, I I also think is, is so magnificently tied to the passage because you see Moses in the beginning of the passage and then towards the end struggling with theology, whereas he's trying to say to God, who are you? What's your name? And what God basically says is, don't worry about it. He's saying like, there's suffering here on earth. And I'm telling you, your mission is to alleviate the suffering. It's not about trying to understand the God in heaven. You're never going to do that anyway. And that's not your point. And that's not my point. We have a different purpose, which is to be partners in attacking injustice and suffering and making a better world. The God basically dismisses theology while encouraging action. Right. And you know, I love, I got this from you. I love that whole translation where you like, he says, I am that I am. I'll be what I'll be. Like, you know, I'll figure out all the other particulars. I just need you to show up. (laughs) You know, I just I just want to know where you participate in this plan that I have to set, you know, millions of people free. Like, are you available? (laughs) You know, and here Moses is talking about what shall I wear? And, you know, is do I need to bring a jacket? You know, (laughs) and he's and God is like, that's that's so unimportant. But isn't that what's wrong with our culture right now, though, is that we have a huge issue in not only America, but around the world where we want to want to talk about the injustices of of uh, anti-Semitism. We want to talk about what's happening with African-Americans. We want to talk about sex trafficking, you know, uh, all kinds of other forms of slavery around the world. And everyone's concentrating on the minute things. You know, you're a Democrat, so I can't talk to you. No, you're a Republican. No, I can't talk to you. No, God's a girl. No, God's a man. No, you know, God is Baptist. No, God is a Jew. And God is sitting there saying, hello, <laughs> you all have bigger things to worry about. Are you going to be, are you going to be willing to participate? 
Right. And, and that's, that's such an interesting point, because when you refer to what God, when, when Moses tries to figure out who God is, and God just says, I will be what I will be, that's God defining himself as future-oriented. In other words, don't even look at me, God now, look at me in the future. I will be what I will be, which to me speaks of a God who's learning, changing, growing. Even God is learning, changing, growing, because that means I will be what I will be. If he weren't, he would have said, I am, I am what I am. But he says, I will be what I will be. Right. It's not a defined thing. You know, I think God has always, and what, and what I'm going to say, you know, for the Christians that are listening, you know, they wrestle with this, you know, because we like to think of God as one set. And this is how we turn him into statues and things of that nature, which he says, don't do that, you know, because a statue kind of tries to define who I was and who I will always be in that moment. And God is fluid. You know, he's like, as man changes, I have to change my approach as well, you know? And so he's like, listen, as we unfold this and as man responds to what I'm trying to do to fix and rectify this, I will probably readjust my plans for this. You know, at first the initial plan was what? Just go tell Pharaoh, let him go. Oh, well, guess what? Pharaoh wasn't as, as ready to let him go. And he throws down, he calls the sorcerers and says, you know, let's show him our magic tricks. Then God's like, oh, audible. Okay, take that staff and throw it down. And you you show him that you got a snake that's bigger than theirs and your snakes don't eat their snakes. You know, like God was like, I don't need you to try to figure out how this is going to be worked out. And what I'm going to say is real risque because it's almost like God is like, I never know what y'all going to do. However, <laughs> I am always ready to respond to whatever mankind is Absolutely. And, and I think God proves that everything you're saying is absolutely right. He proves it in the Torah. For, for instance, there are so many, exa- there are several examples, but for instance, in the book of Numbers, we have the daughters of Zelophehad, and they come to Moses and they say, our father was not in Korak's rebellion. It's not fair. It's not right. It does, doesn't help the Zionist cause if we can't inherit in the land as women. And Moses says, let me go ask the boss, effectively. He goes and asks God, and God says what they're saying is right. God amends the Torah to enable women to inherit. It wasn't in the original document. God says, that's a good argument from these five daughters of Zalopakad, and he changes his Torah based upon human arguments. That's, I, I will be what I will be. Yeah, all, all day long. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what made Jonah so frustrated. Dealing with God frustrated Jonah. Like, people don't ever point that out. I mean, Jonah was so over it. Right. Because Jonah's like, okay, you wreck my life. You tell me to go to Nineveh. I tell him what you say. I go up to the hill to get a good view of the fireworks show. Nothing happens. I go back down and kind of like, okay, what happened, guys? They're like, oh, we repented. We put on sackcloth and ashes. God changed his mind. You know, he was like, wait, what? Right. That's exactly. And that's Jonah's frustration. What a fascinating discussion. Uh, Michael, let me just let's change it to a, a, a moment going back to when I graduated college. So when I graduated college at I think it was my college graduation party. Uh, my mother said to me, now you've graduated college, you're 22, and you're, you're no longer to call anybody Mr. and Mrs. Because if you do that, you're just going to make people feel old. <laughs> now, your father, from all of our discussions, never would have said that to you. Never. Oh, no. As a matter of fact, you were on the call the other day. And did you see, I want you to know, did you see Bishop Ulmer's expression when when I brought up that I was calling Bishop Stearns Robert. Yes. Like you saw in his eyes, like like he was hot. He was he was upset with me. And and, and Bishop Ulmer is a legendary bishop who is your spiritual father. Yes. 
because you called uh, our mutual close friend, Robert Stearns, you called him like I always have and never would think to otherwise, Robert, he didn't like that. Not at all. And, and my father would have also equally had a problem with it as well. I mean, we grow up in our community, very title and position oriented. Why is that? Well, so it stems back to, of course, the slavery days, you know, forever in a day, I think that the society made it a point to call them boys or derogatory terms or little girl. You know, my father said his dad, as big, as strong as he was, would be called boy or monkey, you know, or would be called, you would have to step off the sidewalk to allow a white woman to pass by. So the Black church was the only free space where they could be somebody. The slave masters did not really infiltrate that. They let them do what they did on Sundays. It was where that they could dress up. You know, they didn't have to wear, you know, the patches and the holes and all of that. And so they created these titles. And if you notice in the Black church, a lot of these titles resemble our society. So you're going to hear the word chairman. You're going to hear the word president overseer. Chairman of what? Chairman of the church? or Like chairman of the deacon board. And that person will be called, he'll be called chairman? He'll be called chairman. Yeah. And you'll, you'll see a lot of reserved parking spaces, you know, for the people in power and in position, because that was the only place where they could wear those titles, where they can feel like somebody, you know, the men could be respected and seen as elders in their society and in their culture. And then as soon as church was over, unfortunately, They went right on back to being boys. So anyway, that tradition has carried on. So I think it's one of those, like, when someone is abused, then they they carry around with them this notion of it'll never happen again. So they're very defensive. It's the same thing. I think Blacks are like, you know, you'll never disrespect us again. So we're very big on title. Education wasn't freely handed to us, so we had to work for it. So the degrees that we have, we wear them proudly, you know, you will call us doctor. You will call us, <laughs> you know, whatever our position is because it wasn't given to us. We really had to work to gain it. So that's where that comes from. So Bishop Omer, hearing me call Robert Stearns, Robert, he was looking at me like, now, you know, you was raised better than that. If he could have reached through, it looked like he was going to reach through and grab me. <laughs> You're lucky it was on Zoom. Yes. Very interesting. So let's just conclude with uh, another unrelated question, but they really uh gets back to just profound learning. So in Andre Malraux's uh, 1968 book, Anti-Memoir, he tells the story of uh, running into a man with whom he had served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So he said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. He said, one, that everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Pastor Fisher, in, in your years, and you're young still, but you've been leading the church for a long time. So in your years of leading the church, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Okay, yeah. One, one what I've learned is, is that a lot of people are taught to hate. I don't believe we come here hating. We're taught to hate. Everyone at the core of them is a mother. I mean, is a daughter, is a son, a brother, a sister. And then to correlate with that, on the flip side, I've learned that people approach people based off of assumptions and what other people have told them about them. 
And those two things, I think, is what is what's wrong with our world. My father told a story, and this is what I live by. And people ask me often, how can you be friends with that person who maybe is called a racist, right? Or how can you how can you talk to that person? Or how can you try to reach out to that person after they just killed someone, right? Because I minister to people that have done some horrible crimes. And I tell them the story of my dad. My dad tells a story of there was a group of hunters that were looking for this strange animal that was half dog and half beast. They finally found this animal and they couldn't get near him. They was like, oh, you beast. Oh, you old beast. We're going to kill you. And he was he was just roaring and they couldn't tame him. So they put him in a cage. Finally, here comes this stranger, this traveler, sees this beast in the cage and asks the hunters, can I go in? The hunters laugh. They say, are you kidding me? This thing is a killer. It's half beast, half dog. He said, just give me five minutes. And they said, okay, fine. Well, we're not going to stick around to see what's going to happen to you. They open up the cage. They let them in. They run. After about five or 10 minutes, they don't hear anything. They figure the beast tore the man to shreds. They come back around the corner. And the man is sitting in the cage, petting the beast. And they ask the man, how in the world were you able to do that? He said, your problem was you kept going after the beast. He said, I went after the dog. Hmm. And so for me, if we can just stop seeing people as criminals and seeing people as gangsters and seeing people as haters and see people as hurt children that never got past the pain or somebody's son who is still hurting that his father left or a daughter who's still struggling with an abusive home. If we see them in the context of that, I think then we can find peace or we can come to peace with all mankind. So, you know, your your point about assumptions, really, it's it's so profound because it, re- it really explains to me why Lashon Hara is so strictly prohibited in Judaism. Lashon Hara is idle talk and idle talk gossip, but the particular kind of gossip that is true and it's totally forbidden. It's considered the equivalent of murder plus idolatry plus sexual morality altogether. And why, I I think you just explained it, it's because we come to people with assumptions and gossip, even if it's true, the the most negative thing about somebody might be the most interesting thing about them, but it may not be the most comprehensive thing about them. It won't define them. But once we hear that, that's how we'll think about that person. Yeah. You know, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I'm a black man. And at first sight, unfortunately, based off assumptions, a lot of people don't equate that I'm educated. They don't think that I pastor at church. They don't think that I came from a home that wasn't broken. <laughs> and they just automatically assume what they've heard about me instead of just getting to know who I am and vice versa. A lot of people, if they were to see you, Mark, they just see a white man and they immediately think, you know, you got a bald head. So they immediately think, oh, he's a skinhead. He hates me, you know? And it's like, no, not at all. Mark is so gentle, <laughs> you know? And so if we could just kind of figure out how we can get us back to, like I said, taking the sandals off, taking the shoes off and just coming back and looking through the pure eyes that we're all human. And a lot of things that we do are from hurt that hasn't been dealt with and we haven't been healed. Then I think we'll really start seeing us moving into a path forward. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, uh, uh, Pastor Michael Fisher, thank you for such a wonderful conversation and for bringing this great biblical verse of the burning bush alive. As the Bible's meant to be, you made it so. So thank you. 
Well, I thank you. I really do. And everyone needs to make sure that through Mark and Robert Stearns and Eagles Wings and what y'all do with the Torah every single week, they need to log into that because you, I told you my favorite aspect that you brought out, you know, so I, I, you're, you're a wise man, wise man. Oh, well, thank you. That's a, that's a Tuesday at, uh, at noon. So if anybody wants to come, just uh, email us and we'll get you on the Eagles Wings list. So thank you. Yeah, and anybody want to keep up with Greater Zion, just, you know, follow me at Michael J.T. Fisher on all social networks and just go to our website at uh, gzcfamily.com. Thank you. Thank you.